0: In today's episode of the After the Battle Campfire, we talked to my good buddy, Eric Morante. He was a Marine in Iraq in 2007 when a suicide vehicle bomber attacked his overlook post, causing him to lose his leg. Eric eventually was medically retired from the Marine Corps and went on to do many great things, including helping to form an amputee boxing federation. So on this episode, we're gonna talk about that, his inspiration, his life story, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of After the Battle Campfire. All right, we're back again, and here I am with my buddy, Eric Morante, former Marine, never, yeah, former Marine, always a Marine, however <laughs> that thing goes. So what's up, man? How you doing?
1: Uh, just hanging in at the house, you know, just like everybody else is. For the meantime, uh, trying to wait for this thing to hurry up and get lifted and Uh, get back to normal now.
0: Yeah, no kidding. So, um, I knew Eric from Bamsi. Ironically, we were in Iraq same time. um, And we both left under non-optimal circumstances within a few weeks of each other. Um, Let's start at the beginning. You were born here in Texas, right? Or you were raised here in Texas?
1: Yeah. Yeah, born and raised.
0: So, did you know you wanted to be a Marine as a kid?
1: When I was about seven years old, seven or eight years old, I saw a Marine commercial and always saw the uniform and the the sword, the whole steel thing. And I was like, mom, I'm gonna do that when I grow up. And she was just like, okay, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And I kind of like pursued the boxing growing up as a child, you know, uh, got really active into that. And was thinking about going the boxing route professional. And uh, 9-11 happened. You know, I was 17 years old, um, kind of was trying to figure out which route I was going to go. And after 9-11, you know, I still always wanted to be that Marine and figured uh, it'd be the best time to answer that call and sign up for it, man. So I graduated high school in 2003, and uh, two months later, I went straight straight to boot camp.
0: Oh, damn. So did you go uh, straight 0-3-11 or...
1: Yeah, they, uh, they offered me, like, obviously other jobs or whatever, but I told myself, and I was in high school, and my coach, you know, because I, I like cooking and stuff like that, so I was thinking about doing other things, and my coach was in the Army. He was a soccer coach, and he was in the Army, and he was like, man, if you want to, you know, join the Marine Corps, um, and, you know, you really like the passion of cooking and pursuing culinary arts, he was like, I wouldn't suggest you going as a cook, so as soon as he said that, Um, I said, well, I'm going to go infantry then. So, uh, you know, I I went into the the recruiter's office when I was 17, actually, sorry, take that back. They spotted me when I was 17 and they asked me what I was going to do when I got out of high school. And I was like, well, I'm going to the Marine Corps. And they're like, Oh, got all excited. Well, come in the office. It's good. Let's go talk. And I said, no, man, I'll be back when I'm 18. Don't worry about it. Um, you know, you guys don't have to look for me or nothing like that. And sure enough, as soon as I turned 18, I walked back in. I was like, hey, remember me? I said, I'm ready to sign and uh, I want to do infantry. So um, let's get it going.
0: So that was what, uh, after the, after we kicked off Iraq, right?
1: Yeah. It, well, so like I enlisted in the debt program before uh, the initial push. Oh, okay. And then I was still in high school when the initial push happened. So, um, you know, I was just waiting for my paperwork. So I got my high school diploma and then uh I left I left July of two thousand and
0: three. Which way did you go? Right or left?
1: To what, to East Coast or West Coast? Yeah.
0: For boot camp. West. You went yeah, West Coast
1: West. Hollywood. Um, did the West Coast and then uh three months boot camp, three months SOI, and then uh twenty nine palms is with two seven Fox Company. Within two weeks that I got there, we had like one uh like build up training at March Air Force Base and then pretty much grabbed the rest of my serialized gear. And by February of 04, uh, we were in Iraq for our first tour.
0: Oh, damn, I I didn't realize you guys pushed that fast.
1: Yeah, well, at the time, you know, it was was still kind of fairly new. So all of 29 Palms was pretty much acclimated to the desert uh, because of the training. And, you know, we had our battalions there. So they were using us initially in rotation Mm -hmm. Until everybody else from uh, the other bases were able to come to Mojave Viper and um, do the CACs, build, you know,
0: uh, yeah, do the, do the big
1: so build, they, yeah, so that way they can get used to the heat. Uh, so they deployed us. I was I spent my first two years of my Marine Corps career, I did three months of boot camp, three months of SOI, and then I had fourteen months in Iraq. So
0: oh shit, so that yeah, was real came, quick. Yeah,
1: we came back. We came back and. Uh, let's see we left uh, we left february or january of oh four and then got back september and then by next you know six months later we were already back in the rotation again
0: so did you guys um did you they put you into fallujah that time the first time too
1: the first time we did the uh, retaking of Fallujah, they had us at the Syrian border and uh, Camp Korean Village, which was out in the Arupa area. And half of the half of the company was split to the Jordanian border. They had a platoon out at the Syrian border, which is where I was attached to. And then we had the rest of the company at uh, Arupa, or Camp Korean Village. And then like three months into it, four months into it, Fallujah got retaken over. So they called the joint ops and I think that's when we met you guys um,
0: Well, I wasn't there till 06 so I wasn't there till yeah. your, your second deployment
1: well then yeah well the 04 like I said we, we had a joint ops so everybody pretty much pushed in and they kind of crowded Fallujah from all sides and then we did like a cordon off of the city and then we kind of went door to door started pushing through um, but we had tanks we had uh, air support you know uh, army was there you know and then and then our our guys so, uh we did that for about two weeks okay so then you, they
0: were, you were the april push the the one before phantom fury right
1: yeah yeah, yeah. it was a uh, operation uh what was it called
0: i, I don't remember the name R- of that one ripper
1: suite like, ripper Sweet.
0: okay yeah because that was after those contractors got all fucked up
1: right we found those contractors oh yeah. shit. Yeah, we uh, patrolling through the night or whatever and we went to this city and or this little small town and, you know, trying to ask people about where the bodies were at and you could smell it from there. And oh, yeah. uh, we ended up having to dig them up. Like, some of our guys' e smelled horrific for like a month after them. But they were like two feet. You know, the guys were dug in two feet under and all they had was like their underwear on. Um, obviously beheaded and yeah, man, I was just in the middle of the night, you know, like I said, that smell, man, you just can't get rid of it.
0: Yeah. I mean, that that's one of the things that uh, I don't want to say triggers, but does kind of trigger me is smells like yeah. burning garbage. Um, oh, yeah. Especially like when you're going out towards uh, West Texas and you get some of those ranches that just burning garbage Burn. all the time. Yeah. So how much of a culture shock was it for you going from Houston or from Texas to the Marine Corps?
1: Um, not too, too bad. It was, it was, it was very vulgar, which I wasn't used to, you know, I mean, we had a little, a little taste of it, like growing up in high school and stuff like that, but we were pretty, pretty serious when it came to, you know, like joking around and stuff. And then when I got to the Marine Corps, it was just like a big freaking opening, like a bomb going off and just everybody just being drastically dumb and, you know, playing horse, playing around all the time, but you kind of needed it just to kind of. Get rid of all the the stress and the you know seriousness, but I mean it, boot camp to me was fun. Um, I had a blast in boot camp. I gotta ask
0: I, all you guys, what how did you feel about the gas chamber? When uh, you went through it. How how was your first reaction to it?
1: Wasn't too bad, man. I grew up. My mom was making Chile all the time, so it was kind of like the same deal. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in the house, you know what I mean. Everybody be choking and freaking coughing up stuff or whatever, and like, oh, mom's making Chile again, but. Um, it was cool, man. I mean, like it sucked to, uh, you know, to try to breathe and everything. But once you got out of the chamber, it's like everything that you had congested inside of you just like snorted out. You know what I mean? Yeah.
0: Maybe we should just but, gas everyone for COVID and get it over yeah. with.
1: Do the MRE, the MRE yeah. bombs.
0: Oh Jesus! Yes, I, and you—you you were in at the highlight of those MRE bombs. I, from what yeah. I hear now, is they've made those packages so you can't blow up the. Uh, the, the little stoves anymore oh no yeah so no more mre bombs which well, were the best
1: yeah yeah you'd catch somebody sleeping or whatever and just kind of throw it on their underneath their flack or uh somebody you know we'd stuff people in the wall locker and throw that yeah. stuff in there and
0: <laughs> did you ever do it with the tabasco sauce yeah yeah, yeah. Th- those were the best <laughs> so i know um i know for me getting the order to go was like good like i was really happy to go when it came down to it for you um heading out towards the plane the first you know when you're first pushing out how was that
1: it was kind of nerve-wracking for me at first you know what i mean uh shoot 18 years old you know right out of high school just kind of just got to the group i was only been there for not even a month and then all of a sudden they're like hey man we're going into the into the middle of it so i was like all right let's go this is what we signed up for and then like once you get there um, I think just the fact that you kind of don't know your way around is what really throws you off is because of the terrain. Um, uh, it's so different. It's not your turf. So if it was like, if it was a fight here in our home, like, you know, your territory, you know, your boundaries, you know, where, where you can go where you can, you know, the best spots and this and over there, it's like, you just got dropped in in a very vulnerable position and you don't know which way you take, you know, one step to the left or one step to the right could, um, alter, you know, your, uh, your career. Um, so I was, I was dependent of my seniors as a, as a junior Marine. I was dependent of them and they were really, really, really freaking, um, professional. And even though they hadn't been to Iraq, uh, or deployed, you know, to, uh, to, a, a war, war zone, uh, before then they had several, several years of training, uh, jungle training, desert training, you know, um uh, guerrilla warfare, all kinds of stuff. So I, I depended on them and, you know, they taught us very quickly. Cause like I said, we did that deployment and it was a seven month pump. Well, when we got back, most of those guys were already EAS. Oh,
0: nice. they,
1: they already had been in for three or four years. So that first initial deployment, I was a junior, And um, I was a pretty good shot. So, they at the time, like nobody had ACOGs and you know, in boot camp, stuff like that. It was still all just
0: iron sights, iron sights
1: all the way down. So, because I was a good shot, uh, myself and another guy in the squad were the designated marksmen, and they only allowed two ACOGs per squad. So, I had one, and another buddy of mine from um, McAllen, Texas, had the other one. So, uh, we were basically like the Overwatch guardian angels of the squad. But like I said, it was all iron sights. I mean, the, the high V's uh, uh and the, um, Hummers that we were using were all high backs, you know?
0: Still soft armor had, back then, right? No
1: armor at all. I mean, mm-hmm. you're talking about like plywood and just tarp. And then, uh, you know, we would stuff sandbags in between each other's like backs or on, on the feet and stuff like that. And, um, I mean, it was crucial. because uh, you know, the IEDs weren't that big or that great at the time. So, uh, it was more hand to hand, so like I said, I we mean, you know, just small arms fire. Excuse me. Um, so we depended on them, and like I said, it was it was uh, it was kind of scary at first. But I built the confidence within those six six months, like pretty fast, um, enough to where we came back, and then had to train our next drop to get them ready for our next push. And then as we went on the second tour, I was already a team leader and had a, a fire team, you know, four and. The guys that I came in with were all squad leaders. You know what I mean? Now, like everybody got promoted because all of our seniors had had EAS or, you know, taken off. So uh, that second deployment, um, it's like we had never left. And I was like, dude, we were just here like five months ago.
0: So yeah, like, that second plane
1: ride, it was just like, whatever, man. Like we are we really didn't take off. Like we didn't have time because as soon as we came back, we went back into training and then right back to, you know, so.
0: So when you guys, um, when you guys I'm trying to like get this right. So when you guys got there, IEDs were not really a thing. They were no, just starting up. But by the time you left, right before Phantom Fury, that was a big deal at that point in time.
1: Yeah. How yeah, was we that transition? We found a lot of like UXOs and a lot of... Uh, you know, like 155s and stuff like that on our first deployment. But they were still kind of like testing the waters. They didn't know how to use them. Uh, sometimes we would find like truckers on the side of the road and their bodies were just demolished because they had stopped to try to implement an IED and set it off themselves, trying to dig it under. And, you know, their, their vehicle was kind of like left there. Um, or we would, you know, see kids and stuff like that that... Doing the same thing You know what I mean And uh, I guess You know The the higher Like the uh, The actual like Terrorists would Pay them money To go do this Or go do that And then You know They'd make a mistake Here or there And it would just Go off on them Um, But That that initial That initial push It was still Like I said It was more Of the small arms fire Still RPGs um, AKs You know A little bit Of the snipers But they really weren't the best shooters at at that time. Uh, they weren't trained properly, I guess. But, um, and I guess they had a lot of weapon malfunction too.
0: How was the civilian population towards you guys at that point?
1: Man, each time that we've gone over there, the civilian population to me, it's been the same. Like, no matter where we've gone, every city that we've been dropped into or we've done raids or, uh, you know, it's always the same story. Like, um, you know, uh, the bad guys aren't from here. They come from outside, they come in at night, you know, they implement these bombs or they do this or they take over, they threaten to kill us. And, you know, uh, and then they leave. But it's just like, well, you guys know your own community, so you know what vehicles are supposed to be here and whose faces are familiar and whose faces don't. And we never really got too much help from the general population because they were all afraid. Um, it wasn't until we got good in with, uh, you know, like the local sheiks and uh, the people that actually governed that town that we were in that we would start to uh, counter their attacks. So, uh, you know, like I said, it was just difficult, man, because it seemed like at first initially they were, the civilian population, they were more afraid of the, uh, the terrorists themselves. And... Uh, <laughs> they really didn't provide us with too much intel
0: (laughs) Oh, okay so how was coming home the first time
1: uh man it was it was actually kind of awesome because like i said it was initial still and we had like a big welcome like home party and and there was people outside with flags and wearing their yellow ribbons and just welcome back and welcome home and thank you for your service like miles and miles on it before we even got back to 29 palms and i was like dude i didn't even know there was this many people that lived out in 29 palms you know so it was like it was a great welcome home back you know um my first initial one my uncle was a vietnam vet uh, marine and he was there at victory field with my aunt and you know some of my cousins and i wasn't expecting that i didn't know how they even knew that we were gonna be there and um you know it was really cool to see some family and just people in general just to come out and support like how uh you know that seven month deployment just really went off with that like i said i was initially and then it kind of like started to fade quickly man because like the second time we came back there was like way less people and then the third time you know it's like people didn't even know we were gone
0: yeah yeah I tell me about it by the time you and i were both in iraq in oh seven uh, I think people forgot that we were even
1: there. I think it caught up in everything else that was going on, you know, um, And I, you know, I guess like the generation now too, like the younger generation, there's really don't watch TV, really don't pay attention too much to the news. It's like YouTube and this and that, and just like goofy stuff that uh, really doesn't matter. It's just something to keep your attention span for a couple of moments and then just go on about your day. Like, you know, Hey, I'm trying to do this. or I'm trying to do that. And everybody's trying to make their own life, you know, but um, it's kind of nice to like stop and think about it at the end. Like, i know i know i still do today like i always mention that there's there's somebody always on watch no matter what time of day it is whether it's raining whether it's hot whether it's cold whether it's sleety, whatever there's somebody standing posted and that way we can like lay down and be be free it's-
0: yeah definitely definitely on that one did um so when you went back for the second time how much dif- how how much of a different type of deployment was that
1: Well, the initial, the one we took off on the first one, like I said, the ROEs were like pretty much anybody in the military um, age group was the target. And then the rules of engagement like constantly changed throughout deployments, like even during the deployments, like it'd be one thing one day, and then the next day it's like this and this and this and that. So um, it got to the point to where uh, I saw the full transition from – stop on site to wait until we give you clear to return fire while we're taking fire um and I was like Dude, you gotta be kidding me like we're getting completely like pop shot at um and you have to request permission and we were getting denied at the, by the third deployment you know I was like this is this is insane it's like we cannot win the war uh, and they don't want us to uh you know to, like obviously you know tarnished like our reputations and stuff like that. But, uh, I mean, sometimes it's just like, dude, are you going to let us do our jobs or, um, uh, I don't even have us out here. Like, what's the point of us being out here is just sitting ducks, you know?
0: Yeah, no, I, I feel the exact same way with you. Did you, um, what did you do when you got home? Like the, from the first and second deployments, did you get into anything? I know you got your boxing background, your culinary background.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, in between deployments, bro, like from the first and the second one, to be quite honest, I mean, living in 29 Palms, all we did was just, I mean, I did my, my, uh, Marine Corps, like, you know, uh, college courses, my MCIs and stuff like that. try to like basically become a better Marine, um, working out and then, you know, trying to enjoy the little time of life that we had. Cause we never knew when the next day was going to be that, you know, we would have it. So, um. You know, if a weekend would roll by or whatever, you know, we'd take a drive to like San Diego or like um, Los Angeles to kind of get away from Twenty Nine Palms, and you know, go hang out with family. We'd go, you know, go out, um, just enjoying the LA and San Diego and eating. You know what I mean? Like drinking and stuff like that, just kind of hanging out. Um, because we knew, like, hey, if we go on our next next pump, you know, we're not going to see any of this for, like, another seven, eight months, and who knows if we even come back, so let's try to live life, like, in the moment and to the fullest, and, um, you know, some of the guys went a little too far with that and uh, ended up getting in some trouble, but that was, like, before PTSD was heard of or was talked about, and that's what exactly what it was. It was these guys that were coming back from all this stress and everything that was going on and they were using, you know, alcohol and using, um, you know, like the, the extreme risky um, going out, you know, in the middle of the night, like freaking driving fast, um, driving long hours in the evening just to kind of, you know, cope with the stress that they were building up with.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I know that was a big thing. Even here um, in Texas, it was the same way when I got back over here. Did um, one of the, I guess, one of the things that people don't realize is 29 Palms is only an hour and a half away from LA. Yeah. And a lot of good can happen from that when you have time off and a lot of bad can happen from that.
1: Yeah, definitely, man. I mean, Vegas was close to us as well. Um, San Diego, and La- I mean, we're basically in the middle of nowhere, but in the middle of everything. So it's yeah. just kind of like, whichever, which, whichever, which way you wanted to shoot off to, uh, was, you know, your destination. But we got, I mean, our battalion got in a lot of trouble because like I said, we were deployed so much that when we were coming back, man, like these guys were just going extreme and, and we lost, we lost the Marine that, um, uh, ended up, uh, over drinking himself to where his brain swelled up. And he ended up going into a, a vegetative state in and they had to pull the plug on him because, uh, he just didn't know when to stop, man. I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was a bad loss, but it, you know, um, it opened up a lot of guys eyes, you know, on the, on the drinking part. Cause like I said, I mean, stuff can take over your body and you're not supposed to drink poison like that. And, um, you know, we got some guys that got in trouble. We got other guys that lost their lives and, You know, our battalion was shut down. We had, we had, uh, we had like barracks freaking confined to the barracks, no alcohol in the barracks and nothing like that for several months because people were just getting all these DUIs and, you know, getting out in fights and stuff like that out in town and this and that was occurring. So, um, you know, they ended up shutting us down for, for quite some time because of those.
0: So at the time, I think 7th Marines was the only uh, regiment out there, right?
1: Um, yeah. At one point in time, like all those 29 palms was empty. Yeah. So it's one, seven, two, seven, three, seven. And I think it's three, four, if I'm not mistaken. All four of us were out in Iraq at, at, that. uh, I think it was, I had to have been all five.
0: Yeah. That, yeah. 05. Yeah, so twenty
1: nine bombs were just empty. It was just calm students and you know the the personnel left behind or whatever, and whoever was going through the training uh, at CAX and, and Mojave Viper.
0: I know when we did Mojave Viper in uh, when was it uh, the summer of oh seven or oh six? A lot of you guys were gone too, I think, because you know yeah. as a corpsman, we don't get shit, so we got to go scrounge and trying to get some stuff from Seventh Marines was hard because no one was ever around yeah so I think you guys were probably pushed out at that point in time or getting ready to go um yourselves, but let's go to um let's go to this last deployment, so I know you were out there um when did you guys get out to to uh, so the area in in two thousand
1: seven uh we left i think it was January if I'm not mistaken
0: okay, so you guys were straight up two thousand seven
1: yeah we went. We went um, actually let me back up a little bit. So I re enlisted at my three and a half, three year mark, I guess. Because yeah, I still had a year left. And I re enlisted to go to the drill field. Um, I already had been training as a squad leader with my with my squad for about seven months. So I was getting ready to transition and go over to the drill field,
0: which is and, becoming a drill instructor, right?
1: Correct, correct. Yeah. So that so that was basically my my reenlistment. I already had reenlisted and um, you know talked to the career planner, and I was going to go back to boot camp basically, and then become a drill instructor. Um, but I heard that we we're going two seven with, or Fox Company was going back on another deployment, so I uh, I deferred my orders to go to the drill field, and I stayed with my guys. Um, to go on this last pump and I did that because I didn't want to be going to the drill field and then find out something happened to the guys that I was with and the guys that I was training with um, if somebody else came in or you know they would have brought another squad leader that was less of, of, a, of a leader so I kind of wanted to be there uh, just to make sure that they were Okay, so they, they gave me the green light to defer the orders until we got back from that deployment. Then I would go and transition to the drill field. Well, we took off in January. Um, you know, like I said, I was a squad leader at the time. I was a corporal. Um, we had a whole new chain of command again. Uh, new, you know, new platoon sergeants, new platoon commanders. So um, I had you know three tours underneath my belt. You know, as a as a marine. I was 22 at the time, and you know I bumped a lot of heads with the uh, with my staff NCO and my uh, my boot lieutenant because my staff NCO had just gotten back off of recruiter duty. So the last three and a half years that we were at war, he's been recruiting, you know, in office recruiting, and then we just get this brand new lieutenant that comes out of. Uh, you know, training and the other two squad leaders, first and second squad leaders, one of the guys had just been training officers in land that the other guy was in my fire team the year prior and came from my like, security forces. So I had the most experience as a squad leader, man, and a lot of stuff that our, you know, our chain of command was wanting us to do. I would always disagree with them and be like, no, man, you guys are out of your mind. Like you can't do this. This is not the way it works here. Yeah. And you know, you're going more by the book than what hands-on training uh, has taught me. So uh, we bumped a lot of heads and I know we had a lot of controversy, uh, those couple of months, you know, but, uh, we had to follow orders at the end of the day, you know? Uh, so, you know, I tried as best as best as to complete our missions and then keep my guys safe at the same time, you know? And I had made a promise to my corpsman's wife that I would bring everybody back home. I'm going to bring everybody back. Like, that was my main goal. So, uh, so they end up getting, they, we get sent out to, at first, you know, the first couple of months we were at this cop away from the, from the rest of the FOB and the rest of the company. And then we rotated out and they brought us to the FOB uh, that was bigger. And then they, ended up pushing our, our squad out to a bridge on MSR Mobile. Which and is what was,
0: we were patrolling at the time.
1: Right. So MSR Mobile is like the main highway that cuts through Iraq. It's like uh, I-10 through Texas, you know, or, uh, or three Yeah, US. no, exactly. So um, on one of the overpasses, uh, which was 800 meters away from our FOB, they had a little small fortified uh, LPOP which should have just been an LPOP is just like a, like a look observation post for a short period of time. Then you move from there. Well, this one was a stationary one and it wasn't, uh, it was manned by eight guys. So we had four posts Northeast Southwest and then four guys on rest time, rest period. But like I said, it was a highway overpass. So, uh, you know, people were still allowed to come underneath us. We didn't have the manpower to have a checkpoint, all of our and coalition forces cut through there, cut underneath us. Um, our orders were, as long as anybody doesn't stop underneath the bridge, um, you guys should be fine. If somebody stops underneath the bridge and send the four guys that are off, gear up and go down and check out the situation. But we had no bat system. We had no way of, like, knowing what those vehicles had inside of them as they were coming underneath us. We didn't have, you know, there was only eight guys so we were stationary on that bridge. We didn't have a serpentine, anything to slow traffic down to kind of, you know, visualize, maybe get eyes on the guys. I, I, uh,
0: can tell you, I can tell you from my perspective as someone who drove that road every single day for 150, or what was it, like 112 missions, that thing stood out. Like a sword, like why? Why are these guys up on this bridge with no protection? Yeah, you guys had sandbags for small arms, but
1: yeah. And then, and like it was funny because like like I think it was like a month or not even a month. Yeah, probably about a month, maybe. Right before we got hit, they fortified it. So the whole time we were at that cop, there was already a squad there, but I hadn't seen the bridge because they had just sent they sent us out to the cop and we were running missions out of there. So it wasn't until I came back to the fob one day. And we picked up, we resupplied on like MREs and stuff like that. And, um, I looked at one of my buddies and he was, he was, uh, from second platoon and he was on that bridge. And I was like, dude, what the heck are you guys doing over there, man? He's like, dude, it's stupid. I'm like, what's y'all's point? He's like, well, you know, we got to watch the road and make sure nobody's implementing any IEDs on our, on our field of view. And it was a pretty good long range of view. But like I said, like you said, it stood stood out like a sore thumb because it was the only thing that was out there so uh i talked to him i was like dude you guys are gonna get like blown off that bridge man i was like that's a freaking vital spot yeah and then he told me the rundown how it went i was like that's so stupid i was like you guys should not be up there at all so then when they sent when we did the rotation my squad happened to be out there right and i've raced all kinds of hell man i talked to my platoon sergeant i talked to the platoon commander i even talked to the uh first sergeant and they ended up fortified and, like the bc came in um one evening and he saw the way that we were living there and, and kind of, cause we were just, you know, we were living on that bridge, man. And we would rotate like every two days I, I could rotate two guys. So every two and a half days I could rotate two guys. And four of my other guys were on, uh, at, at the fob, you know, standing guard. And then our corpsman was on the bridge, like 24 seven, he couldn't go anywhere. So he lived, ate, drank, slept, bathed on that bridge we only get one corpsman, right? So he can't rotate out. So he was stuck there, dude. Um, So BC came out one time and he's like, yeah, this place needs to be fortified. Like you guys, you know, should be wearing your Kevlar 24-7. I was like, and your flat, you know, I was like, well, what about when the guys are off and they're, you know, they're sleeping? He's like, they got to stay in gear because you're outside the wire. And I was like, well, then what's the point for us to be here? So they ended up bringing engineers in and they fortified it. Um, They built like this, uh, basically like a little small, a compound and then they fortified it with some more, uh, you know, five ton glass and uh, some more sandbags on top and on the bottom and stuff like that. Well, um, that happened like a, a, a month prior to us getting blown up. Well, we ended up getting hit the night before somebody tried to blow up the IP station, which was across in the village, right. Which was maybe about two clicks away. And then they simultaneously, they tried to blow up uh, another dump truck at the front gate and the front gate stopped them there. So, you know, automatically we started racking up and I told the guys get ready cause we're next. They didn't hit us that night. They waited until the next morning when the gates were open and traffic was allowed to come in and they hit us the very next day. I think it was probably like around noon o'clock. Um, the dump truck was filled with 3000 pounds of explosives. He came as soon as he got underneath us, detonated the bridge. You know, all my guys kind of went flying off. And uh, some of us fell off the bridge. Some of us landed, you know, right there. And the rest of the bridge kind of collapsed when I woke up completely covered in in debris. And I don't know how long I was out. Could have been 45 seconds. It could have been uh, 45 minutes.
0: Did you guys, um, did you guys, did you feel it coming?
1: We knew it was gonna come because of the situation that we were in, but we just didn't know when. So sometimes we would see a vehicle that had like a bunch of stuff stacked up on top of it, you know, those or those red those orange, like, the, water pearls. Yeah. And we're like, dude, this is it. So we would sit there and kinda like and we would see it come underneath us and then wait for it, wait for it. The car would go and then we'd be like, Okay, I guess today wasn't our day. What, and that what, would just
0: What was your ROEs at that point in time?
1: <laughs> dude, I'm telling you, we would take we would get pop shots at the bridge. And you would hear like the shots coming out and hitting five ton of glass, and be like, "Hey, we're getting pop shot at by this area or whatever." Request permission, negative. Damn. We're gonna send Q, we're gonna send QRF out there, uh, just kind of let us know the vicinity of which, and then because we were we were immobile there, we had the only thing that we had was you know we had a fifty cal, we had a two forty, we had a, obviously our saws, um, you know uh, pyro, our M 16s um you know our grenades and stuff like that, a couple of AT4s, but that was it. I mean other than that, we were we weren't able to leave the bridge and go assess the situation and then come back because we didn't have the manpower for it. So we depended on the FOB because it was eight hundred meters away from us. They assured us that you know QRF would be ready to go and kind of lock and load. So um uh, You know, like I said, we were just sitting ducks with sitting
0: ducks. I I know we pulled up onto you guys at least once or twice during my deployment where we actually pulled up to the base of the bridge. Mm -hmm. And it was like you said, you could literally just walk right onto the bridge. There was no, there was no, uh, what am I thinking here? like no gate system, no barriers.
1: Like the bridge was like this, right? Yeah. And on this side, it was like Constantino wire and we had a dummy bridge here. And then we were actually, like, the bridge went across, so the highway was going this way. And this is where we were stationed at. It was all eight of us on this side, but we had a dummy bridge with, like, it was fake. And then we had tarp that kind of went in between the bridges so that way nobody could see on Wait. top us crossing back and forth if we needed to. But, dude, I mean, if we weren't on alert alert, anybody could have just walked up there without us, you know. Yeah,
0: that, that and to think that that never happened is yeah. even crazier.
1: Well, I, I just think that... uh you know, I don't think they had they were too intimidated of us to try to do something like that because
0: yeah, um, I can tell you back in December I think it was, so right before you guys would have got there there was a bridge that was near Abu Ghraib, which is the southern side of our patrol that a dump truck had tried to take out we had to, we had to escort some CBs out there to take a look at it so it's not like it was an unheard of that they're going to hit bridges
1: okay. yeah yeah no at, at, at the time like the year prior man there was there was a lot of bridges that were being uh they were putting implementing ieds on the bottom of the bridge so that as people as coalition would drive by they would detonate it and it would blow straight
0: on oh, top sure. of them. that one's yeah they were they were creative with that
1: so yeah so, so like us you know anytime somebody would be on a on a bicycle or like on a moped or whatever and they would come underneath us like we'd have to like literally like use mirrors to kind of see what these guys were doing if they didn't come out on the other side within like 30 seconds because you know we're like hey what what are you guys up to like why would you stop here
0: yeah uh, i mean and and that was a one of the things that we learned really quick is was that our whole mission was to keep that road open not for us alone but for the iraqi public too
1: that's what our orders were because like i said it was it was used by iraqi police it was used by iraqi army we had tanks that were you know having to cross through there um we had coalition forces obviously you know patrols different different uh, units that would come through there so they wanted us like our main job was to basically keep that eight click distance on both sides open so that way whenever our our um allies were crossing through there that'd be a safe you know, crossing, and we could hear you guys on the hook. Come every time you guys were coming through us. Um, I think one of my junior marines actually spoke to you uh, on a hunt one yeah. time. You guys were on a hunt and didn't know each other, and then you guys were. T- he was talking about the bridge, and you were talking about this, and then yeah. all of a sudden you're like, "Dude, you guys are." Or, or, or I remember that that name on the on the hook.
0: Yeah, we uh, we would play uh, the Batman theme song every time we came by your bridge. <laughs> yeah. don't ask us why we were bored. Um, yeah, <laughs> but so. You, you, you guys got hit, and you guys got hit bad. Um, yeah. I heard about it over here because uh, one of our friends—I I think you're still friends with her, Nibia—who was the um, the marine liaison. Correct. She was kind of overseeing me because being an FMF corpsman, the Navy kind of didn't know what the hell to do with me.
1: Right. And correct. she had
0: mentioned that there were going to be some people coming in from that area, and we started talking. That's how I knew that the bridge got hit. So, um, you guys—I mean, that bridge was gone, gone, right?
1: Yeah, like completely demolished. I think the only thing that was left was a bunch of rebar that was hanging down, um, the axle of that dump truck, and, and then they ended up—they ended up blowing uh, the rest of the bridge completely after they they met a back to there.
0: So did how long were you – do you guys know how long you were in the rebel before any response got to you?
1: I can't tell you. Um, The word that I got back, as I said, is as soon as the smoke cleared, you know, um, is when they sent, like, QRF, I guess. But there was a a dismounted patrol uh, at the IP station, which wasn't too far, that – they ran from there immediately after the, after the, um, the blast. And I think our, our CO, like after they, cause they felt, they all felt the shock they're 800 meters away. Like the glass, blew, this is this a five story building. They got, you know, rocked and they're 800 meters away from us. So once they felt that and saw the mushroom cloud half a mile up in the air, you know, they automatically assumed that everybody was just dead. So if it wasn't for like my junior marine who I don't know how he did it because you know before the blast we had all our stuff organized we had our little chow area we had a resting area we had our you know where we kept all the small arms and our AT4s and our uh, our radio and like our little COC you know what I mean so we had it all segregated out everything was all organized well after the blast man like my scenery changed completely. Like I had no idea where anything was at and there was just dirt, sm- you know, uh, debris everywhere. I was spitting up like dirt and and blood at the same time. I didn't know where my Kevlar was at. My rifle was gone. My med kit was gone. Um, so I woke up in a completely like upside down type world and out of nowhere, I don't know how he did it or where he did it, but he managed to find.
0: I think I lost you.
1: And he, he passed like as soon as he popped, it, he passed out. So that was the sign that pretty much saved us because uh, they knew that there was life after that pyro went up. So then from there, immediately they started sending QRS. And uh, like I said, I don't know how long I was out, but when I woke up, I was completely covered uh, by concrete. My probably I landed on my shoulder, and then my uh, my left wrist had a, a, a huge cinder block concrete that was kind of like that hit it and it fell over and like landed on, on top of me. So when I woke up, first thing I did, you know, before I even opened my eyes, I could just hear ringing in my ear. And as the ringing was going on, like in the back of my mind, I was already like, damn, we just got hit. And then my sound started to come back in. And I could hear some of the guys screaming and yelling in the background and in the back of my head, again, I was thinking like, please just stay quiet because if there's a secondary small arms fire coming in, you're gonna give away our position. So I kind of wanted to be like, just shut the hell up, like say it out loud and shut up. But I didn't want to give away my position because I still didn't I didn't even open my eyes yet. I didn't know where I was at or what situation I was in. So I ended up moving my hand up and I, I, you know, I could feel the, the block on top of me. And I could just, I started pushing on it, man. And and little by little, you know, as I would get down further and further and I started leaning up, I was able to lift the whole thing up. Don't ask me how, it was probably just adrenaline because it was a cinder block. It It was a piece of the highway. And it was directly on my left ankle. I already had pushed it all the way up off of me. And it was standing completely up and it covered my whole body. So I don't know how thick this concrete thing was, but you know you're, you're talking about a street you're talking about a highway
0: yeah overpass yeah.
1: so it was pretty big i gave it this last final push and it kind of like leaned started timbering over and it fell off of me and uh i sat up and like i said that's when i started to you know taste the blood and kind of feel the grit in my teeth and i looked down at my right leg and my boot was like in an l shape kind of going back towards my hip and i was bleeding my left wrist was just turned all kinds of crazy ways and um my lip was dangling down and every time i was spitting it was popping me up here in the face i could feel something just kind of hit me and then kind of like slide its way down Uh, my teeth were broken my jaw was shattered Um, i had to get facial reconstruction uh, left wrist fracture amputation of the right leg um you know obviously like the the shoulder injuries the back injuries some of my other guys they took you know broken back punctured lungs punctured kidneys uh, amputation of uh, arms amputation of legs. Doc's still in the vegetated state as of today, and it's been 13 years. Uh, he was in a coma for the longest time, you know, so we took a lot of uh, back and spinal uh, and brain injuries. Uh, you know, because like I said, we were only 15, 16 feet away from that initial blast, and you're talking 3,000 pounds of explosives that rocked a five-story building 800 meters away, so, you know, yeah. how Amen. how we survive that, like, it's only in God's hands, man, because, uh, you know they're, they're, that, 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 you don't hear that happen at all no, no
0: no no and so did you stay conscious until help arrived or did you no. pass back um, out?
1: I uh well, after okay so after I initially woke back up I was looking for my med kit I was looking around I couldn't recognize anything um I was bleeding out I couldn't find my tourniquet or nothing so I just kind of like grabbed with my right hand I grabbed my right leg and kind of like started to squeeze and just to kind of see if I could slow down the breathing and um, I leaned back and I was looking up at the bridge where it kind of like was already concave down and at the very top I could see a guy like running and jumping and kind of like getting his way closer and he was running down the rebel and I was kind of like down here somewhere and I was trying to focus in on who that guy was man I was looking I was looking looking as he got closer and closer I started to recognize him and it was one of the guys from weapons platoons that um I believe it's Buxton or Buckner. I, I I don't recall his last name, um, off the top of my head. But it was his face that I recognized. And once I knew it was him, I knew that QRF and help was there because I knew it wasn't one of my guys, but I knew it was our guys, you know what I mean? Right. So after I recognized his face, I leaned back and I said a quick prayer. I said, God, it's all on you. This is all I could do, you know. Um It's in your hands. And I leaned back and I said, if this is it, you know, um, this is it. I closed my eyes and I blacked out there. Um, But I didn't go unconsciously. Like I myself blacked out, but I was still up and running um, because I was told from other parties that came to the bridge, picked us up, that I still was trying to report my post when the CEO came. I mean, I don't remember the helo. I don't remember getting medevaced out. I don't remember being conscious, but uh, remember I told you I had four guys that were at the base on guard. Well, they had to set up the LZ for the, for the uh, helos to come and get us out of there. And one of my junior Marines, my team leader, um, he said he overheard me yelling at the guys as they were carrying me in the gurney to be careful with my leg You know, um, as they were getting me out of there and the last, you know, vision that he had of me was like seeing my face all demolished. and My legs just kind of plopped up everywhere. And as they were loading me onto the helo, but I don't know how long that took or I don't remember any of that. And then from there, it kind of blacks in and out for me and flashes. I remember one piece being at either Balad or Baghdad uh, and that junior Marine that ended up blacking out and popped the pyro. He was pushing me in a wheelchair. They had my hand in the splint. My leg was already amputated. I couldn't see how bad my face was. And that blast that I told you about that happened the night before at the IP station. Well, some of the guys that were at the IP station, they took them to that, to that hospital facility just to get screened because they ended up having a blackout as well. So they were being there monitored. And I saw one of the guys there and his name is Hitch. And Hitch came up to me. He's like, "Morante, is that you? And I was like, hey, man, what's going on? And he's like, dude, what the hell happened? I was like, man, we got hit like bad, bro. And he couldn't recognize me because I was just so swollen and kind of like uh, beat up pretty bad. But I remember speaking to him for a split second as my junior Marine was pushing me. And I blacked out of there. And then I wake up in another hospital. I'm in a hospital bed and I'm like screaming in agonizing pain. And I could feel everything kind of like catch up to me. And then we got hit on a Friday. And like I said, Saturday and uh, Friday evening kind of like faded in and out. And then we woke up Sunday and launched to Germany. Uh, and that's when like I knew like the mist of everything. Like I kind of realized what, what went on fully. I immediately asked and requested for my guys to be in the same room with me. Uh, Doc was in ICU. Um, the rest of my guys were in different floors, but I wanted everybody, like I said, I need to get eyes on. If you guys don't bring them here, then I'm going to get out of this freaking bed and, and go where, where they're at. Cause I only, I want to know what bad, how bad they are, what state they're in and what's going to be their recovery. Like, you know, so as I was still messed up, I was still being a squad leader for them, you know? Um, and then come to find out, you know, my jaw was, uh, was busted up pretty bad. So the Marine liaison was there in Germany and they're they're you know, after they reunited all of us in the same room besides doc, they're like, Hey man, can we get you guys anything? You know, what do you guys want? I said, man, do, y- do y'all have like any real food here? And they're like, well, we got a burger King downstairs. I was like, dude, that's perfect. Like nothing would be- beat us, uh, you know, worse than having a cheeseburger right now. So, uh, they, they went and grabbed everybody cheeseburgers, man, and fries and sodas. And we hadn't had food like that in fucking months, bro. So, um, they bring everybody's food and everybody's just kind of sitting around. Everybody's all hopped up on IVs and morphine and this and Dilated and blah, blah. And I'm looking at everybody. I'm like, all right, cool, man. Like it's a shitty situation, but I was having a freaking burger and we're eating together as a squad. Like that's our first meal. Um, you know, it kind of, it was kind of enjoyable for like a split second. Right. Um, so then I'm getting ready to bite into this cheeseburger and this freaking nurse comes running in the, in the room and she's like, stop, 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 stop. You can't have that burger. You can't eat it. I'm like, Oh shit. Like watch me. I'm about to tear this thing up. Like she's like, you got to go into emergency surgery right now. Your, your x-rays and MRIs just came back in. She goes, your jaw is broken and completely shattered. If you eat that burger, you're going to mess it up. You're going to mess up your jaw furthermore. And you have to go in the immediate surgery. So you can't have anything to eat. So I was like, dude, you got to be freaking kidding me, right? Like pissed off as hell. I turned around. I'm like, man, I look at my buddy. I was like, Mendez, you want this cheeseburger? And like, I turned around. And I looked at him and his cheeks were like this. He was already freaking halfway <laughs> into his burger. And he was just like,
0: mm-hmm, give me more. I was like,
1: all right, man, here. So I saw his face all swollen. I gave him my burger. And they rolled me out of there, man. I went to surgery again and I came back. They wired my teeth shut, my gum shut. Um so the next meal for the next six to eight weeks had to be all blended and drank out of a straw. So uh oh. that Burger King Burger Man still haunts me. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, I never got to eat that fucking thing. So but
0: in some crazy way you guys all made it out breathing from yeah. from from that. Which yeah, is man. which is one of the crazy things about war that I don't think people understand. I mean, by all rights that uh, We shouldn't be having this conversation on either side, but yet, um, you guys, you were able to at least keep your promise and bring everyone home. Yeah, breathing.
1: and that's what that's what I was telling you. Whenever I was talking to when I got to meet Yvonne, they she was she was a uh, I think she was like four months pregnant at the time because Doc was the only one that was married. He had just gotten his wife pregnant. Or um, well, actually, you know what, Mendez was was married as well, um, but. He was the only one with, with, without uh, without a, a a kid. And his kid was on the way. And we would always mess with him, you know, like saying, hey, Doc, we're going to get extended, man. You're not going to be able to see your kid be, you know, be born and this and this and that. And he'd be like, fuck you guys. Like, I'm walking back home if I have to. <laughs> you know, this and that. So uh, because of Doc's stay that he was in, they flew his family out to Germany to to because they didn't know if Doc was going to be able to survive. And they didn't know if they were going to be able to Stabilize him enough to send him back to the state. So they flew his his uh, his father in law, his mother in law, his mom, um, his wife, and I met them in Germany. And dude, when I saw him for the first time, I just like broke down and started crying because you know I made a promise to her that I was going to bring her husband back home, and I told her I was going to bring him back home alive. And I was just apologizing because I was like, you know, me, I wanted him to be in that same state. Before we left, that was that was my promise. But she was like, "No, you you know, Doc is home now. Like, and he is alive. So you did complete your promise." And she's like, "And I thank you for that." But you know, she was four months pregnant at the time, and um, you know, we didn't know how, how Doc was gonna be if he was gonna wake up, if he was not, if he was gonna be in a vegetative state. I mean, if he was ever gonna be the same. So we're talking 13 years later, man. His son's fully freaking grown, full on teenager, and Doc is at home. They re, the Navy retired him uh, after a couple of years of him going to therapy and, and kind of uh, getting as best as they could. Uh, but he's at home and he's still in that vegetative state. Um, you know, can't talk, can't eat uh, on his own. You know, everything's done like tubes bathing wise. He's got 24 hour nurses around him. Um, but he's still in there though. You know what I mean? Cause I've had conversations with him in the past and his wife talks to him and his kid talks to him. And when we lost bulk, Volk was one of the guys on the bridge he died in a motorcycle accident about a year and a half ago I went and told Doc I had to break the news to Doc and even though he's there in his wheelchair and he's kind of sitting there like kind of you know hanging out when I went and broke the news to him man like his lips quivered like he took a big deep breath in and when he was breathing out he was just like and his lip was just quivering and it's like he understood he knows What's so there's, going someone,
0: on? there's someone. There's yeah. someone inside. He's in there.
1: He's in yeah. there. He just can't express himself fully like he would, uh, you know, in the past. And he'll, you know, if you're talking to him, he'll slowly make his way eye contact until he locks on with you. And then uh, sometimes he'll tense up, or you know, sometimes he'll just kind of relax a little bit. Uh, like I said, you'll see him smirk a little bit. He'll, he'll kind of give you like a little, little smirk from the side and. You know, Avon uh, has worked with him um, for several years. Now she's been by his side, he's worked with for several years. And he's got, uh, he's progressed to a certain point where, you know, he's got a screen. And you can ask him like, hey, where's the red car at? And he'll go and it'll be highlighted because he's got a band that attaches to it. And it will go to the car that, you know, the questions that you ask. Uh, simply like yes or no things.
0: Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice.
1: So, like I said, I mean, and, and you know, his son's a great kid, man. His son's, a, she's a, she's an incredibly strong woman, and she's raised AJ, awesomely, um, to where he's he's very compassionate. He understands a lot, um, you know. And, and it's funny, man, because we had a reunion, uh, maybe like two years ago, three years ago and he was hanging out with us, like with all the guys from the squad and some of the guys from the other platoons, like we all came down here, right? Semper five Fund um, ended up funding our reunion. And we went to Avon's house and we ended up taking him with us to go visit some of the guys that passed away in 2005 that were in, in the Houston area. We went to go visit Robbie and there was like five of us in the truck and AJ was in the back, man. And he was sitting there having conversations with us and we, we were, we're shooting the shit, you know, we're like, hey, bro, this and this and that, and hey, bro, that, and then all of a sudden AJ's talking to us, he's like, yeah, bro, this, and I remember this, and blah, 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 and he starts talking off, and then we all just, like, kind of stop look at each other, like, dude, is that Doc in the backseat right now, because that sounds exactly like him, like, we're hanging out with this kid, and it's like he's here. You know what I mean? Yeah. I like, this little boy has no idea, like, you know, how awesome his dad is to the extent when we're sitting there talking, telling stories about his dad and he's, he's going back and forth with us and it sounds just like him.
0: That's cool, man. That's super cool. So, you ha- went from Landstuhl to Bamsey, right?
1: No, I went from Landstuhl to Bethesda Naval Hospital in Maryland. Oh. And I was in Maryland for about three months. Um, and they were going to send me to Walter Reed because, you know, under the Marine Corps, we fall under the Navy. So they sent us to Navy, Naval hospitals. Um, but at the time, Walter Reed was like super packed because we were getting a lot of guys coming in and uh, they gave me the option because I was from Texas, I guess that, or no, I take that back. They gave me the option to come to Texas because the center for the Intrepid had just been built right. In like January or February of that year. And we got hit in April. So by the time I got to uh, Bethesda Naval Hospital and they stabilized me and I had all my surgeries and stuff, uh, they gave me the option to either go back to Texas or to stay there at the Naval Hospital. So at that time, man, I was like ready to get back home and I didn't want to leave like Texas ever again because of everything that had happened. So, um, uh, I decided to come to San Antonio and they, they me out of launch tool. They brought us to San Antonio and I stayed there until, uh, December of 2010 when they medically retired me.
0: So what was it? What was your experience like with the center for the intrepid? Cause apparently that place is like the shit in terms of, yeah. Uh, it
1: was a, it was an awesome facility, man. Like therapy there was, was very high tech. Um, it was kind of, I don't know, man. Like, at that time, right, 22, three tours in Iraq, Navy and Marine Corps is pretty much everything that I knew, right? And we would always talk crap about the Army guys because I was like, dude, you guys are all jacked up. You guys are all jacked up. So when I was in Longstreet, Germany, bro, I went drill instructor mode on a lot of the nurses and docs because they were different. They were different than our corpsmen. They were different than our Navy, you know, what we're used to um, being uh, taken care of so dude i was chewing people's asses out left and right because i would call them nobody would show up or you know i needed my meds or whatever i was in pain and this and this and that nobody would come um it'd be hours you know and i'm like dude this is fucking horse crap man so i went drill instructor mode on everybody for the longest time so when i got to bam scene you know i was in my wheelchair it's all jacked up still or whatever um I was still impatient, but I was able to kind of like be free now. So everywhere that I went, bro, everybody was calling me a soldier. And that irritated the crap out of me. So I went to the PX because at the time we didn't have like a, you know, it was just Fourth recon that was an attachment or, you know, that I attached yeah. to and it was a reserve unit. So nobody, was, everybody there was either army or uh, air force or whatever. Um, um, so everybody just automatically assumed that I was a soldier. So I was like, dude, F that, man. Like, don't compare me. Don't freaking uh, put me side by side with these guys, right, or whatever. So uh, I immediately went to the PX and bought, like, seven or eight, like, gung-ho Marine Corps freaking shirts that cost, like, $25, you know, that you probably wouldn't even have spent yeah. five bucks on what you're enlisted. But I was like, dude, I'm not I'm not letting these people call me. So as I would roll by and people would be like, hey, soldier. I'm like, nope, not a soldier. I'm a freaking Marine. Like, So I was so proud of that, you know. Um,
0: now you know what it feels like to be a sailor attached to a Marine Corps unit.
1: Yeah, exactly, man. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, but I mean, like the facility was great, man. Like I said, they had a lot of high-tech uh, equipment that Marines aren't used to because we do everything. at the We're at we're the lowest of the low, you know what I mean? When it comes to finances and uh, the things that we get hand-me-downs, you know, everything that the Army doesn't utilize, they give to us. And then we yeah. turn on and do stuff with it. Zeus, get over. Come here. Hold on. My dog's tripping up. Get over here trying to eat bees don't eat at ease so uh, so it was crazy bro because like it like i said it was it was it was very high tech but um you know they had all these um like hand cycle rowers and they had um you know these cyclist things that were just like like one footed type deal i mean it was it was made strictly for amputees uh the wave runner you know you could do the, the surfboard deal um, they had a little small track upstairs. They had a rock climbing deal. I mean, weights and everything like that. But it wasn't what I was used to. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Marine Corps wise. I mean, we're lifting sandbags and the bar. You know what I mean? Out in freaking. We had barbecue pits that were made out of like trash cans and Hesco barriers. And now all of a sudden, I'm in this like multi million freaking building that has all this high tech gear, and it was it made me feel like I was a lab rat. <laughs> you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah, because now all of a sudden, like, I'm working out in this high-tech facility. It's not a gym. It's not a sweatshop. It's not, you know what I mean? Like, it's AC. There's, uh, you know, uh, temperature, like, heated pools and this and that. I'm like, dude, this is crazy. Like, so I would get there and and they would would have me, like, do my therapy. And within, like, five or six minutes, I'm sitting in the same spot and I'm looking around and I'm just like, dude, this sucks, man. Like, I don't want to do this. Really? Because I feel like I was just labra, like i was a, you know they're just monitoring me okay do this for 15 minutes and go do that and initially i was motivated because i had a goal to make it back to victory field as the guys were coming back on deployment i wanted to walk out on the field so i i pushed myself in three months i was up and walking on a That's prosthetic I couldn't walk like great, but I could take a couple of steps and then have to sit down and get in my wheelchair and then roll for a little bit. And then I'd get back up and kind of stretch out and, and take a couple more steps or whatever. But that was my goal. So I kind of pushed it hard for those three months to make it back to victory field. But afterwards, man, it's like when I got back after that happened, um, I plummeted, man. I I hit, you know, depression bad. I I hit rock bottom uh, for the next several months because I was on medication. I was drinking on top of that. You know, I I didn't know what I was going to do for for my career. I didn't know how I was going to live the rest of my life, you know, being amputated. And um, I thought everything was going to like be over for me, you know, or basically the beginning, beginning of the end type thing. So I kind of got in the murky water, man, and started falling down this little rut and that lasted probably about a good eight nine months you know until uh until i saw several things happen to me again that made me freaking snap out of it and um pull pull my head out of my ass you know what i mean and and start trying again and from there like we started climbing back up man, and came up and overcame the obstacles and the hills and uh you know, but it's it's crazy because like I said, with everything going on now too, it's like you get so far and then all of a sudden, bam, yeah, you'll get yeah. hit and you can push back down. And then I know
0: you start. That, oh, sorry. I, I, no. I know I know that uh around the time you were there and I was there, there was a big pain med issue going on at Bamsey. They were handing out fentanyl pops like it was candy with no oh, yeah. issue, with no restrictions. I mean yeah. there was a whole bunch of guys in the burn ward that you know have a case of Thirty fentanyl pops gone in four days, and oh yeah, by the way, they're at the men's club drinking mm-hmm, every mm-hmm. single night. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, it was funny. I never got those, but uh, I would see some of my buddies, yeah. and they're like driving to the hospital, and you oh, can see the, that little thing sticking out of their yeah. mouth. I'm like, did you guys are driving? <laughs> like, what, what I know like, about
0: fentanyl now, I'm like, how the hell did all these people? Um, I got I got one box, and I never used them. They just never. I was never that bad in pain, but just watching people like offer me money for like, hey, man, you want to sell it? Like, give you a hundred bucks for your box. What? Yeah. It, really? But it was freaking nuts. We had uh, you You knew the Navy guys from the ship that were all that burn patients.
1: Some over, someone. Yeah.
0: Uh, I don't know if you remember Matt. He got really, really big skinny guy. Young, the youngest of the three. He had really bad issues with the fentanyl. Mm. And you know, people were. It was weird because people were falling all over us to make sure that we were doing well, right? And sometimes enabling, um, all the painkillers,
1: right? Well, shoot, man. I mean, to at that time, bro. Like we had so many people coming in in bad conditions, dude, real bad conditions. I mean, all the guys that I was hanging around with were burnt like 80% bodies on top of that, they're amputated. Um, I know this other kid that was a triple amputee. You know what I mean? So like people are, are walking by us and they see all of us together and we're like, you know, in bad shape. So I think we got a lot of like, like, I feel sorry for those guys. So let's just give them whatever they want. Yeah, yeah. And 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 let them be type thing, you know? And... And it, like you said, it was kind of almost like enabling a little bit, you know. Um, but little did we know, like like a lot of the guys were using that as as a coping. PTSD, so going to the extreme with yeah.
0: that. Yeah, you cut out there for a second. I think you said that they were using it as a coping mechanism for PTSD and.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like I said, just dealing with the, uh, you know, the pain, the uh, the new you, uh, you know, going out in the public. Like once I first came out of the hospital and went to like my first little restaurant with the family, I just wanted to go back to the to the room, man, because you know something that was easy as easy as just taking a step in the parking lot to get to the restaurant. Now I had to go all the way around and go to the wheelchair ramp, come up the wheelchair ramp. And then, you know, usually I'd open the door for somebody and now they're like sitting there and like feel sorry for me. And they're opening the door cause I'm in a wheelchair and I'm like, you know, it just bothered you, uh, people staring at your leg and stuff like that. Initially it bothered me. Now it's like, I've grown and I try to teach and implement, um, what a prosthetic leg is, what, you know, a wheelchair, um, bound person can, can and cannot do, um, uh, but I teach people that don't know, so then that way they don't feel uncomfortable, you know. But yeah. uh, it's 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 kind of like I said; you, you kind of feel it's human. It's human of us to to feel for that other person once you see them in that situation. So it just you know, it's it's an act of kindness. But sometimes we don't take it that way because. You know, we were just that Superman strong guy and all of a sudden we're very vulnerable and we don't want nobody's help. We don't want nobody to feel pity for us. We don't want nobody to do this. It's like with that pride kind of like, you know, uh, gets in the way. Yeah. So, uh, you know, like I said, it's, it's a growing tool for me. At least it's been the past 13 years. Like I've humbled myself, you know, uh, and God's humbled me several different <laughs> times throughout my uh, throughout. My time here.
0: So did know, you, come- come here.
1: Did
0: you get screened for TBI while you were?
1: Oh, yeah. Come here. Yeah, they said I had a... Hold on. Zeus, come here. They have a moder- uh, mild to moderate TBI. At least.
0: Which I think, um, as you were saying, like with the PTSD coping, I think that was another one that got overlooked quite a bit was exactly what TBI was. Right. So um, as you guys, as you progressed and I saw you go to a point to where I didn't even realize half the time you had an amputation. Um, In fact, I think I remember seeing you at the CFI one day tripping out because you had a prosthetic that looked like a leg.
1: Yeah. With like tattoo
0: hair there, everything.
1: Yeah. It was all the Barbie doll legs. So
0: at some point in time, you got back into your culinary and your athletic side. Yep. What, what drove you back to, I think you went to what, the culinary Institute?
1: Yeah. I went to AI in San Antonio when they opened up uh, initially. Cause like I said, you know, getting out of the Marine Corps, uh, being retired medically I was like, okay, so what's my next step? What am I gonna do? I'm, you know, 25, uh, what's my next career? What am I gonna do uh, for money, finances, business-wise? You know, how am I gonna be a, a member of society and be a good father and be a, you know, still continue being a good leader? So I followed my passion. I went to a culinary school for three and a half years, um, you know, pursuing my bachelor's and then, um, I always wanted to open up a restaurant man so as soon as I got out from school I started working in restaurants and within like the first 3 4 months that working in these restaurants and you know doing internships at these places I quickly learned that that's not what I wanted to do after all man uh, it was a lot of pain a lot of endurance on a, especially uh, on the amputee side of it. Like, it was it was uh, taking a toll because you're working 10, 12 hours, days, and you're working six days a week. You know, and even though I wasn't in the kitchen at the time, um, I was in front of the house management at a restaurant here. Zeus, come here. It was uh, it was taking over, man. Like, I, my stress was getting built up. I was losing my freaking mind because I was in so much pain. I was so short-fused. I almost got into a... Freaking, uh, do this. That's not part of my job description. I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? Like I do your job, the owner's job, the chef's job, the bartender's job. I take out the trash, I wash dishes and I was like, and I get paid a freaking salary. I said, you make more money off the of tips and I'm helping you out in the long run. And I was like, and I'm asking you for a favor. And you're telling me no, like forget you dude. You know? So I started, you know, people, people would like uh, not show up, people would not show up to work and this and that would happen. So I was like, dude, it's, it's too much, man, it's too much. And I had to end up taking on a lot and it was just too much for me. So uh, I ended up opening up a catering company where I would do on-site premise catering. I would do one job, I'd work for you know a couple of days, prepping and setting everything up and then break down and blah, blah, And I would hire um, help as I needed it on a, on a daily basis type deal. And uh, we would do those jobs. And I started doing that for quite some time until the boxing, uh, amputee boxing opened up in San Antonio. And that's something that I had been wanting to do for so many years. Um, and that's what got me out of my funk, to be quite honest, because like I told you at the CFI, like I was doing the therapy sessions and I would only last 30 minutes, you know, and I'd get bored and be like, man, forget this. But then I'd go to a boxing gym and I'd be there for six to eight hours sweating freaking you know jumping rope doing this doing that sparring hitting the bag It felt that much better so uh i got back into athletics when they opened up the uh the boxing we started fighting
0: so did you ever get involved in the adaptive sports program like the warrior games
1: um i did but like the games that they had i never really uh excelled in it because i was more focused on the boxing and because boxing wasn't in the Paralympics, it's not in the Paralympics, it's not part of the Warrior Games, it's not part of any of the Invictus Games or anything like that, um, I would use those as, like, training. Um,
0: training stuff. So,
1: yeah, so, you know, I do, I do the sled hockey. Uh, I did, like, a couple of little marathons here and there, or a sprint uh, marathon or a triathlon, a um, hand cycling. Um, what else? swimming and things like that, just to kind of further myself better in, in the whole boxing. stuff.
0: Like for, for conditioning mm-hmm. type stuff then. Yeah. So talk to me about how amputee boxing is different than regular boxing. It's really
1: not, man. There's really nothing different to it. The rules that we wrote up because we were our only first league of its kind ever. And it started here in San Antonio, Texas is that in between rounds, we decided to write up 30 more seconds for rest period, just in case you needed somebody to change your prosthetic leg because of the sweat buildup. So we added 30 seconds. So that way a prosthetist or whoever your, you know, your, um, your corner guy is in case, you know, you're gloved up. Right. So if they need to readjust, because whenever you sweat, um, profusely and there's moisture inside of your leg, whenever you go to rotate or run or move your leg, that, that, uh, prosthetic will turn, you know, just a little bit.
0: Cause it's suction based, right? And it,
1: well, some of them are, some of them are screwed on. Some of them are like, you know, have waistbands and stuff like that. There's several different, different types. So what we decided to do is that we added the 30 seconds, just in case you needed that time, that extra time to take out that liner, take the prosthetic leg off, wipe it down real quick, put another liner on and reset it back on there. So that way you can get back into the fight. But, uh, you know, I've, I've had six fights as an amputee and it's, it's all under amateur, amateur fighting. Uh, we, we don't go past five rounds under amateur fights and in golden gloves, they don't let you go past three rounds, right? Three. So, yeah. Three rounds is all you get in golden gloves. And it's either usually like two minutes, uh, or one minute, depending on which, which level of amateur you're at. So I've never had to switch my leg out in the five rounds that I fought ever. And I've fought up to two minutes, uh, up five rounds with another amputee and, um, I've never had to switch the leg. Now after five rounds, then yeah, you, you probably need that extra 30 seconds to kind of do that. But, um, other than that, man, there's nothing else that's different. Everybody weighs in the same weight. Um, the only thing is we weigh, we weigh in without our prosthetic legs because some prosthetic legs are heavier than others. As long as the prosthetic leg didn't exceed the 20, 20 pounds, then, you know, you'd be fine. Um, so we would weigh in without legs, you know. Um, Stand up boxing, sixteen ounce gloves, headgear, mouth gear, two minute rounds. Uh, like I said, up to five five rounds, and everything would be the same, you know. Knockdowns, uh, knockouts. Um, you know, like I said, just the minute and the rest period was the only thing difference. But technically, we really didn't need it unless you were going past five rounds. Damn. You know.
0: So was it both above the knee and below the knee, or was it just below the knee?
1: Yeah, no. It was a. Uh, some guys had two below the knee. Some guys had above the knee and below the knee. Some were just above. Some were just below.
0: Oh wow. Okay, I didn't realize. I didn't realize you well, guys had. We had.
1: We had guys that were missing like two or three toes, and technically that's an amputee. So, uh, you know, they could go in, just missing two toes, and they'd fight somebody that was you know missing above the knee.
0: See, I didn't realize you guys had double amps. Um,
1: yeah. Oh yeah. Damn. Oh
0: yeah. That's. Both yeah, great. I think
1: we, we started that back in like 2012, uh, 2013 is when I think I stepped back into the ring.
0: So what's, I, your, what's your game? Are you going to still continue that?
1: Well, uh, I'm in the middle of a lawsuit with USA Boxing right now because uh, I signed up for Golden Gloves when they opened it back up here in San Antonio. It's uh, like two years ago now. And they stopped my fight an hour prior to me stepping into the ring because I was going to fight able body guys. But we had been under the impression that we were already allowed to compete with able-bodied guys and there's amputees that fought in different states under USA boxing Um, but all of a sudden I don't know what happened so it seems like I got discriminated against on this one and I haven't been in the ring in three years and like I said I'm 36 years old now man I've committed eight years of my past you know to the fighting to competing to trying to become the first amputee champion uh, in the whole U S and like I said, we keep building ourselves up to this wall and then all of a sudden somebody will just crush down on it, man. And just kind of rain on your parade. Um, but to be quite honest, dude, I'm, you know, it. I'm 36. If I was a professional fighter boxer, I probably would have already retired like three years ago, oh, you man. know? Yeah. And like I said, I, I put so much commitment and, and lived as a fighter for eight years you know, I gave to the sport by trying to build it up, um, helping create the rules, helping be the pioneer of the, the amputee boxers, and then get ourselves to compete with able body fighters, which, you know, there's, like I said, there's really nothing wrong, um, uh, with an amputee fighting an able body fighter if, you know, if they can do it. So we I mean, showcase, we showcase that. And like I said, they, uh, they still kind of managed to shut us down. So, um, I talked to it throughout my coaches and they're like, dude, you know, maybe you should, you know, go pro and, um, you know, just to kind of make a statement and and fight professionally and see, you know, this, but I was like, well, then if I do that, then for sure, like I would never be able to go back to amateur boxing. I would never be able to go back to golden gloves. I wouldn't be able to compete in the Paralympics if they ever opened up the games, you know what I mean? So it's just like, uh, like why try to make a statement, you know what I mean if, if you're going to lose a lot in the end of it I mean yeah it opened the doors uh, but I thought we already did that seven yeah. eight years ago so it's just like they keep getting shut down so I, you know I've lost so much time dude, with my family I've lost so much time trying to raise my kid um, just to kind of excel and be the best at this one sport and like I said I feel like they just discriminated against me because I've seen amputees fight against able body fighters sanctioned fights You know, uh, I went through all the process. I went through all the steps. I became a member. I went through the training. I got out of work. I did this. I did that. Uh, Went on diets, you know what I mean? Like all kinds of stuff to make weight and to to be at that stage. And then I had sponsorships that were, you know, basically sponsoring me throughout the whole training camp. And then my thing was to perform. And then I go to perform and they shut me down. Not my fault, but I ended up losing my sponsorships because it was like, dude, we gave you, you know. X amount to have a fight night and fight night comes and you don't fight. So I lost that. So, uh, so yeah, man, am I pissed off? Hell yeah. Um, you know, do I feel like, you know, they owe me definitely, you know? Um, cause like I said, it's, it's eight years of, of devotion and something, if I would have, if I would have fought, let's just say, right. I, if they would have let me fought and I would have became the first MBT champion, how much more you think that would have set me up for my future?
0: Oh, definitely, definitely.
1: I could have been, I could have been doing all kinds of things by now, and you know what I mean. Like they took that from me. Are
0: you still yeah. <laughs> so what? What's going on with the the lawsuit? Then is it just doing the legal thing at this so point? So because
1: of the whole COVID thing, like everything's kind of been shut down, right? Like everything came to a complete stop, and then uh, my lawyers finally just got back to me, and USA Boxing, like put a shutdown to them because uh, the lawyers that I have are out of here, in Texas. And apparently in order to go into lawsuit with USA boxing, they have to be licensed out of Colorado. So now they gave me all of uh, my lawyer team basically cannot represent me on this case. So they gave me all my file and everything back to me. Now I'm in the process of looking for a lawyer in that Colorado. is, that's going to be basically licensed to, 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 um, practice the law in Colorado and uh, on top of that, be willing to go and represent me.
0: Damn. So COVID's messed with us too now. Big time.
1: Yeah. And like I said, man, I've been waiting on this for several years now. Like I haven't been able to get back in the ring in three years. So I'm just like sitting here, you know, again, feeling that isolation, feeling that whole depression and everything kind of coming back on because I can't even get in the ring. Yeah. without them threatening you to take my license but they won't let me fight so it's just like well, what's the point of having a license?
0: So are you able to train right now then? And um, at all?
1: Right now I've actually I I stopped training for a little bit because the the gym we shut down the gym because of the whole covid thing situation so uh I haven't been to the gym in like 8 9 months.
0: So let let's talk about the covid. How how has that been affecting you? Obviously the gym that you train at shut down, but yeah. uh, on a day-to-day how is it yeah.
1: Well, man I mean it sucks bro because like I said uh you know I feel like I'm just kind of sitting around like watching what's going on on the news and not being able to do anything not being able to be a voice not being able to be an example it just sets me back so much um you know I've, I've gotten a little bit of depression I've, I've I've gotten hurt you know during the whole COVID thing where I was immobile for a while and dependent of my uh of my family to kind of take care of me uh for a little bit so uh It's been a struggle, man. It's been a struggle. Like I said, you know, I can't go out there and, you know, make, make ends meet. In other words, to uh, keep my family above float because everything's been shut down and we don't fall. We, we don't rate unemployment because we're retired. Right. You know what I mean? So it's not like I'm getting unemployment and this and this and that, uh, to kind of help, help me think it's just my, you know, my retirement that I have to take care of everything at home. Um, and shoot, bill stack up quick, man. Like I said, our retirement's not enough to provide for a family.
0: No, especially when you have a kid and loved yeah, ones in particular.
1: Definitely, man. So you know, I've got, I've got my, you know, my, uh, my lady, our son, my son. You know, we've got dogs and stuff like that. So it's just like, what do I do for the meantime? I can't just go and, you know open up a gym because all the gyms are shut down and I can't make any money like that. I don't want to expose our family to COVID. No one's gotten it inside my household. Thank you. You know, but like I said, we've taken it very cautiously and we've stayed at home, but man, we still got to get things done around here. And, you know, bills got to get paid. And it's just like, when are they going to lift it up or are they going to have some kind of other system to where veterans who are retired can apply for uh, unemployment or some type of a, uh, you know um,
0: Assistance of system
1: yeah. system of, of some 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 nature that that can help us as well because like I said we don't we, we don't apply I can't apply for you know uh, unemployment I'm not on social security um, you know um, like food stamps and all that stuff or whatever doesn't apply to us it doesn't we don't rate it or whatever uh, so yeah man it's, it's a pain in the ass like I, I've gone a lot of like you know on a couple of hunts and stuff like that to keep the, the freezer stock with meat, but you know, that's just one little thing. I mean, I'm, I still got to pay bills and, uh, yeah. you know, medical stuff is I'm covered, but you know, my family's insurance, I got to pay out of pocket for that stuff too. You know? So has um, it,
0: ha, has COVID affected you for appointments with the VA or anything? Um, or for
1: the, I mean, I haven't been able to go get a, a, a fitting prosthetic in months, dude, like months, months. Um, they wanted me to do a sleep study and I had to decline that cause I didn't want to go to the hospital and kind of expose ourselves for that. But, you know, uh, we've done a lot of video online type stuff, but that's just been mostly for the behavior health and mental and, uh, you know, like PTSD clinics. And, uh, like I got my, uh, CPAP machine and, uh, the tens unit machine and things like that. Those go over online. And they just mail stuff to the house, but like, uh, for shoulder, you know, um, uh, leg or or, you know back issues and stuff like that i still have to go uh in person it's just uh it takes some time because they shut down the vas for quite some time too
0: yeah no i i've i've been debating about the uh telemedicine and i heard a couple people say like behavioral health is really good with telemedicine yeah but the other stuff you're right like i i know i need to go get seen for my back and for some things and yeah. I just went and saw a civilian physical therapist, and it was a very weird experience going into a, a doctor's office right now. And this was, what was it, last Tuesday I went and it was like hand washing, masks on, a little, a little uncomfortable. Yeah. How do you, uh, how do you, how are you holding up with all the other side, not just the COVID, but the unrest? And I know Texas isn't getting it that bad, but. I know Houston had some problems with the protests. Well, the, numbers,
1: the numbers are up. And you know what I mean? Like I said, uh, I, I'm, I live out in the hill country, man, now, uh, which is a blessing for us because like I said, we're, we're kind of kinda away from all that, you know, uh, riots and the protesting and the stuff like that. Um, but it's not, you know, we can't avoid it. You know, we have to assess it. And um, what's going on in the country today, man, it's, Almost like unbelievable. I mean, it is unbelievable. Um, but I think we, we need to like come together as a whole and and voice out because you know what's going on today. It's so so much corruption, so much fraud, so much uh, treason. You know that I, that I see that needs to be assessed asap, and we need to come together on the same terms because we are a nation that is for the people So the people need to speak up and stand out. And I don't understand why our leaders are in these positions still, how are we allowing them to still be in those positions to make decisions that don't even benefit us. It benefits them. So it's like, how can we, you know, um, get them out of office to where, you know, it's legit. It's the actual voting it's, you know, us, being represented by our president not by you know the the house of of representatives and and you know the the speaker of the house and people that have like their own agendas uh to basically keep us uh it feels like it's turning into a communist country man
0: yeah no i I feel uh, like you kind
1: of see like the dictatorship come out about i was like dude didn't we fight against all of this and all of a sudden like now we're in our own home and it's happening to us yeah um and you know um trying to keep God out of the country. I mean, that's just ridiculous. You know what I mean? And so I back up our president fully, man. And it's just, I wish we had more support towards him. And it seems like we've got a big number. It's just, you know, the enemy is trying to attack on several different levels, man. And they're not, they're not backing down and they're openly, you know, getting busted and and nothing's being done to like there. No one's getting put in jail. No one's getting taken out of office. No one's getting uh, they're just getting like these little slap on the wrist and they continue doing the same thing. So it's just like, dude, like how much further do are we going to let them go until, you know, everybody opens their, their freaking eyes and sees what's really going on and what are we going to do about it?
0: Yeah, well, we become too much of a two team system. I mean Well,
1: that's why they're trying to divide the house, man. And yeah. and that's that's what it says, you know, how do you make how do you make a house file? You divide it, you know? Um, yeah. And have left and right side. And that's exactly what's going on right now.
0: And I, I you know, I, I I say this with all seriousness. There there are people out there who want to see a breakdown. And what's yeah
1: well because well, they're, they're making money off of it that's why yeah.
0: but what one side's thinking is it's going to look like the french revolution we're going to do this all for the people i think it's going to look more like iraq you know sunnis versus shia they're it's yeah. not going to be a pretty thing and i i really am concerned about that and i never thought i would be
1: yeah Uh yeah. well to me i'm not i'm not concerned about it you know what i mean like i'm trying to trying to be happy and like i said uh Live as best as I can with what I, with what we have time because we don't know how oh, much yeah. time we have left.
0: Definitely. The
1: you know, the thing that's scary is like you're, you're we're setting this up for the for the next generation. Like, well, how are our kids going to survive this, man? Like, uh, you know, it's going to turn into, like what you said. You know, you know, blue versus red. Yeah. And, you know that's that's when we're going to be vulnerable and outsource enemies are going to want to try to freaking sneak in through the lines because we're distracted on each other and that's when the stuff's going to hit the fan man
0: yeah uh, on that note let's uh let's end this on a happier note yeah <laughs> <laughs> so i have to thank you first off uh you gave me the opportunity through uh organization um where i actually met your one of the guys from your unit. A couple of years later, a hunting organization for my first hunt, and since then I've been trying to do as much hunting as possible. So thank yeah. you for opening my eyes to that, man.
1: Yeah, no, man, it's better to eat that way, anyways, man. Because you don't know what's coming at at stores, and you know. The- everything that's been processed and injected, all kinds of stuff. So um, I like the natural, yeah. the natural way.
0: Actually, when, when I get done with this, I have a dough. I have to go break down in the uh, cooler and in the refrigerator.
1: Good deal. Yes.
0: But on, on that note, so we call this podcast after the battle campfire, which goes back to the days of when, you know, you would go on long campaigns and you'd fight during the day and that night, everyone would get around the campfire and, more than likely talk shit. But the the actual channel is called The Modern Ronin. And I did that because I feel like a lot of us left service or ended service before we were ready to. And what a true Ronin was, was someone who lost his master, but still wanted to serve. Uh, so in that context, I see you as one of the original uh, guys I'd call a modern Ronin, who's out there always trying to help people and serve. So what, what do you have to tell people about? trying to continue to serve.
1: So um what, what that's funny you bring that up the modern ronin because I've I've always had a real big uh uh connection with like the samurai culture and the Japanese culture of the warrior uh warrior spirit, you know. And it's funny because after the samurais were taken out of uh rural Japan, a lot of the uh a lot of the warriors they banned the swords, they banned the steel, they banned all their weaponry and uh most of those guys were able to utilize their skills and became sushi chefs because they were still able to use those in knives. Really? Uh, yeah. So a lot of the warriors, the Ronins or, you know, everybody, the Samurais, um, a lot of them became sushi chefs because they were still able to use their craft, the cutting and the knife and the steel. Um, so they took away the swords, but they were still able to use knives and they were able to use the knives in the kitchen. Um, so that's funny. Cause I kind of went through that same transition. Like they took away my guns or whatever, but I still got my, you know, my knife kit and stuff like that, where I can kind of like, like I said, I do my hunting, my fishing and it's therapeutic for me. Uh, but I wanted to help feed vets, you know, and help vets eat better. Uh, so that's kind of like my new transition that I'm trying to get into now. After the whole fighting and going up and boxing and, you know, doing everything like that, because I still have the passion for the culinary background, I want to implement uh, and teach veterans how to eat better for their bodies uh, so that way they can live a longer period of time and then be in the right state of mind with the stuff that they put in their body uh, instead of feeding themselves poison after poison after poison. So if you think about it, when we were in Iraq back in those days, you know, guys were eating MREs. They were drinking rippets, smoking cigarettes, dipping, uh, you know, and then when we come back from deployments, everybody go out drinking and stuff like that. So all that right there has a has a, an effect. It's like a tornado. And it, uh, it starts to break you down in, in one way or another. And, um, you know, after we got injured and you know, I was on so many different medications, I was just ordering food, processed stuff. I gained a lot of weight. I was at heaviest ever. I was on, you know, different steroids and stuff like that. On top of that, I was drinking. So it was just like a ticking time bomb waiting to go off. And uh, at a point in time frame, my health, like, got really bad. So then I kind of switched my habits of eating, um, made a lot of adjustments, and Just by eating properly, I've been able to keep my body in a healthy state of of, uh, mind and and period to where my cholesterol and everything has dropped down and my weight is uh, manageable. And I don't have to overkill myself on exercising. Uh, It's just because of the proper nutrients that I'm feeding my body. Um, So I would like to do that for other vets and teach them uh, on, on ways of that nature because I want them to live a long, prosperous life. And you can do that by putting different types of nutrients inside your body. It's like you have to doctor yourself up some, you know, you go to a doctor and gives you a prescription. Is how you get better, you know, taking this pill, taking this pill, blah, blah, blah. Well, with me, it's like, okay, well, if you're feeling this, this way, you know, you're feeling no energy or this, then there's certain foods, nuts and fruits and stuff like that, you can kind of complement together and put together to help your body react to that. Right. So I started, I started digging into the spices and the herbs. Um, and I really want to start implementing that, like I said, eating uh, properly for, for each other.
0: Well, we'll talk after this. Um, so this show, After Battle Campfire, is one of many I'm planning on doing on this channel. I'm actually looking to start something specifically for health and nutrition on this channel, too.
1: Cool. So,
0: yeah, definitely. That'd be cool to collaborate with you.
1: Yeah, man, I'm all for it. Like I said, uh, we're, we're starting here. As soon as, like I said, as soon as this stuff lifts up, or even if it doesn't, I'll probably end up doing it uh, within this, this next new year.
0: Nice, nice. All right, man, I'm going to end the recording. Cool. And thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you can follow us on social. Check us out at our website, modernronin.com. On Instagram, The Modern Ronin. On Twitter, at TommyChase01. And you can always support us at modernronin.locals.com. This is our Locals group, and it would be great
1: if you guys joined and subscribed. Some great benefits. Talk to you guys soon. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you can follow us on social.
0: Check us out at our website, modernronin.com, on Instagram, modernronin, on Twitter, at TommyChase01, and you can always support us at modernronin.locals.com. This is our locals group, and it would be great if you guys joined and subscribed. Some great benefits. Talk to you guys soon.